Today we get an inside scoop on the answers to the most intriguing and topical questions in science today. We have a lively discussion with the author of a riveting new book called The Big Questions in Science. You will hear the book's author explain how they researched answers to questions such as how did life begin, why do we dream and when will I have a robot butler? Ooh, I want a robot butler. Mm. You are listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. We've a new book which Chris here is pretty fired up about. Yes. The book is called The Big Questions in Science, The Quest to Solve the Great Unknowns. And it answers questions such as how did life begin and are we alone in the universe and more. And it's written by Hayley Birch, Mun Keat Louis and Colin Stewart. And Chris here got to speak with one of them. That's right, Roger. In the new book, these three science writers look at some of the most exciting and pressing questions facing humanity right now. They explain how experts at the bleeding edge of science are working to solve important problems. And the great thing, the authors explain everything in a way that's easy to understand, helped by quite stunning photography and some funny cartoon drawings too. It sounds like a perfect coffee table book. Oh, it really is, and it's well worth picking up to read. In fact, Roger, I've already bought some copies for my family as Christmas presents. Good idea, Chris. I hope the family aren't listening. <laughs> anyway, let's have a listen to this phone chat I had with one of the book's authors, Munkeet Louie. This is Chris Kreese from The Science Show, and today I am with Munkeet Louie. Hi, thanks for being here. Hi, Chris. Hello, hello. And you call yourself a professional nerd and science writer. You're also online editor at the Wellcome Trust. You do all of their online publications and blogs and social media. And you're web editor for the Association of British Science Writers. And despite having what sounds like almost no free time, you co-authored the book, The Big Questions in Science, The Quest to Solve the Great Unknowns. This just dropped 12th of September and can now be purchased in bookstores. And we'll put a link to that on our podcast page. Thank you. There are loads of popular science books on the market. They're all trying to bring people up to speed on particular subjects, astronomy, evolution, zoology. Now, what inspired you guys to write a book of questions when there are often no definitive answers? Well, I mean, I think the the, the way the book came about was that um, Colin, Haley, and I met up in a pub uh, one time. We were just having a drink and thinking, oh, it, it, it would be nice each of us would like to write a book, but what kind of things would we like to write about? And that got us thinking about various different ideas like geekery and handbooks. And I think what sometimes makes a good topic is when a question a question is unsolved, but still we're making a lot of headway in it. Uh, and that's largely, I think, how this came about. And then through our agent and talking to various publishers, Carlton Books had, a, had an idea like this. They wanted to do a, a book about the big unanswered questions in science, which chimed a lot with us. And so that just kind of gave us a chance to really explore that. And we sat down for a whole day, actually, in a coffee shop, just kind of brainstorming, OK, what, what kind of what kind of questions would we actually want to answer, which is harder than you think sometimes, because some questions are just either far too technical and scientific, that they're massive questions for science, but not necessarily something that the general public would uh, be interested in. And then a lot of the questions that most people are interested in are things that scientists are also interested in, but the way you phrase them ends up being a bit more on the philosophical side of the scale, like, you know, why do we dream and what makes us human? 
And then there are other questions like what is consciousness, which scientists definitely have in their minds. But I think some scientists certainly try not to phrase it that way because it's the, it becomes quite difficult to conceptualize when you think of it in such an abstract manner. Now, there are 20 questions covered in your book of many important science questions that are out there. So I imagine that you might be getting mail from some professors demanding to know why their important <laughs> research wasn't covered. How did you, Haley and Colin, fight it out to come up with the final 20 questions that you included? I'm imagining, you know, a gladiatorial event of some kind, or, or did you agree to do Colin's laundry for a year to get your favorite question included? How did that work? Something like that, yeah. Like I say, so we spent uh, a whole day sat at this uh, coffee shop going through literally spent the first few hours just making the biggest list of questions you can possibly imagine. And we had to throw out a, a, quite a number of them. Uh, so each chapter of the book is 3,000 words long. So you've got to realise what you can do in 3,000 words and what you can't do. And it also depends on, on how you're going to tackle. We wanted to give a really good account of what science was doing in each one. But we also didn't want to leave the sense of, leave the reader with a sense of nothing's happening. It's too big. Um, because it's definitely not as if science isn't doing anything in some of these things. Um, and we also wanted to get a good balance of subjects as well. You know, I think when we talk about the big questions in science, science is a very large term. It would have been easy for us, for example, to have done entirely biological questions or entire, entirely physics questions. But we definitely wanted to include some things like maths, for example, in it, which are quite fundamental. So that's why we wanted to definitely have something like the prime number question in there. We wanted to have some really important practical questions. For example, the, where do we put the carbon? Will we ever cure cancer? Um, how do we beat bacteria? Some of these really big, very pertinent questions, which we felt it was, they are big, massive questions in science. And part of that is the urgency uh, that we have as humanity to try and solve these things, to kind of allow ourselves to stay alive and keep advancing as a species and as a society. But as, as with the, uh, the environmental ones, with the energy ones, with the carbon ones, it's, again, kind of a way for us to tackle questions that I think had a lot, have a lot of media coverage. They have a lot of context there. People are obviously aware that uh, global warming and, and energy shortages are happening. Um, so it was a good way to kind of tap into people's existing knowledge about such subjects and explore those in a way that shows how science is tackling these very pertinent questions um, in a way that would also chime with the readers. So, yeah, we tried, We spent a whole day basically trying to, uh, to balance all of those factors out whilst, you know, kind of hacking down our list of, I think we had about 80 or 100 questions at one point, wow. and then eventually get them down to the 20 that we thought we'd really like to, we'd really like to tackle, which had a good balance. Yeah, well, I think you did come up with a really great balance. And I have to say, I love the writing in this book because it's completely unstuffy. For instance, one of your big questions is, why is there stuff? And last time I checked, stuff wasn't a technical <laughs> term. So it seems like you made a conscious choice to jettison the jargon rather than using a lot of specialist terms and spending most of your readers' time defining them. So do you think this is an overarching philosophy of yours when it comes to science writing, or do you change time? No, definitely. And I think it's, a, um, it's an overarching philosophy that uh, most science writers take to their work. I mean, we were definitely very uh, conscious that this is not a textbook. This is not a book for people that have a PhD in any of these subjects necessarily, although it, it could be. And the thing that we, uh, as a science writer, you always take into account is that even if you're writing for Nature or Science or one of the, the big scientific journals, the people reading the news section, certainly, or the features in there, they're not 
always going to be an expert in that subject, even if they are an expert in a subject. So somebody who's a who's got a um, who's a professor of physics is not going to understand necessarily everything if you're talking about the human genome um, or vice versa. So you try and write in a way that's going to be accessible for an intelligent reader, but in a way that's going to that's not dumbing it down, um, that's not patronising them in any way. And we were quite aware that you know the, a lot of people that that do read these popular science books, these uh, coffee table type books, they're just like friends of ours. They're, they're people that have retained an interest in science, which is a lot of people because science is a part of everything that we do. Um, but they're going to be put off if you can kind of go in and you you name a question like what is M theory or anything like that. <laughs> um, so Colin in particular was quite aware that when you tackle physics questions there are a lot of jargon there are a lot of equations and things like that but you want to get down to what is the fundamental meaning of what it is that you're asking so it comes down to things like why is there stuff um, or are there other <laughs> universes uh, rather than as I say saying what is M theory or what could string theory teach us today kind of thing which sounds kind of intriguing but to other people it might be a bit like I'm not going to read that what would you say is the most challenging question the one that still keeps you up at night Hmm. that's that's a really tough one some of these questions were obviously they were all quite massive some of them were easier to tackle than others in that even though they're unanswered still there's definitely a path that we're moving towards so for example the chapter on antibiotics, how do we be bacteria, um, was one of the, in some ways, one of the easier ones that I had to write because I knew the things that people are doing to try and tackle those things. I talked to a lot of scientists and there was definitely a path at which, you know, you could tell that we made this, Sir Alexander Fleming had made a discovery uh, that had been carried on by Florin and Chain. Medicine had advanced rapidly and then you could explain what exactly antibiotics were, what exactly the bacteria were doing, and then we were at this this kind of sticking point, this where the pipeline was stuck, and then we were able to explain the theories that the ways that we were using to try and uh, unblock that pipe and try and uh, create more antibiotics. But with other questions, I think for me certainly, because I got lambded with some of the uh, more philosophical ones, like um, what makes us human and what is consciousness, um, I think those were more challenging because, as I alluded to before, you get a bit more philosophy in there um, and it all becomes a little bit more semantic in terms of like how you answer the question very much depends on how you're interpreting the question. Very much. So, yeah. so things like consciousness. Consciousness is a really interesting question because it involves a lot of philosophers as much as it does scientists. So neuroscientists have obviously made massive strides over the last 10, 15, 20 years. But at the same time, the mind is still extremely difficult to get your to get your head around, no pun intended, um, because it's very subjective. You know, we um, we can't ever really know what it's like to be somebody else or what it's like to be something else. Um, to paraphrase uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel, as I say, the scientists try and interrogate it about as best they can by doing things like trying to piece together a brain whether virtually or in artificial intelligence, um, to see if consciousness emerge. They try and piece together each part to see which are the bare minimum parts needed for consciousness to emerge. And they also, at the same time, you've got all these philosophers looking at it and trying to interrogate how it is that you can even start to tackle such a massive question when you yourself are never really sure if what you're asking somebody and what they're telling you is exactly 
the experience that one is having of consciousness because it's this it's this strange thing that we know exists it's kind of there but you can't really touch it or see it so you never really know what it is that you're doing so i think that that was probably one of the the, the most challenging questions and uh, similarly with the what makes us human it really depends on how you're looking at it some people say culture a lot of people say stuff about genetics a lot of people say uh, it's to do with the size of our brains and things like that. There's different ways of looking at it. There's no real one right answer. They're all right in some ways, um, and they're all still being investigated as we speak. So it's kind of how you collectively pull that together in one 3,000-word chapter to try and say, this is me telling you everything that all these scientists are kind of doing. I hope that certainly in my chapters I've given a bit of a flavor of that. What about the most important question to have answered for the betterment of humanity, if you had to pick one of your 20? Oh, I think the most important, um, oh, that, that is also a tough one, because on the one hand, I do think that some of the uh, <laughs> some of the environmental ones that Haley wrote, particularly the how do we get more energy out of the sun and how do we solve the population problem? Actually, that was a really important one, which actually came quite late in our thinking. We were trying to think about other kind of broader, more energy or environmental questions um, we had the one about carbon we had the one about energy but the population problem i think is a really interesting one which i think people know is coming you see it a bit whenever we tackle things about energy and about food production because um certainly in the last few months with that story over the summer about cultured meat um that was really interesting in the media coverage it got because it got a lot of people thinking about where does their food come from and is there going to be enough food in the next 50 to 100 years how are we going to keep up with the meat demand? And that kind of ties in with, again, what are we going to do with all these people? Um, not only where do we put them in terms of space, but also where do we get all the energy from that they need? Where do we get all the water that they need? How are we going to feed all these people? So, I mean, for me, that was a, that was a kind of one that it kind of I, I was surprised that it took us quite so long to think of it because I think it was a it's quite a pertinent one and besides that from my end the, the more medical side of things I think um, cancer is a massive one uh, even though uh, to kind of give away some part of the chapter will we ever cure cancer no it's, it's been around forever and unfortunately it's probably always going to be with us in some way but uh, we are making massive strides in treating it and I think also the bacteria question I think genuinely if, if more and more people can can be aware of how much of a problem it is with antibiotics that we have, how much of a problem it is that people misusing antibiotics, people not finishing the, their courses of antibiotics, the kind of the precipice that we're at in terms of the lack of new antibiotics coming through the pipeline, or people just understanding what antibiotics are in general and how they work and um, why you can't just ask your doctor every time you go there for an antibiotic whether you need it or not. I think that's actually quite a big one, and you see it again in the last year or so with people like the chief medical officer coming out and speaking quite imperatively about the need to to be more aware and the need to be more careful and fund studies into finding more antibiotics i'd like to hope that that in a little way kind of helps to uh, raise awareness and hopefully allow us to change our behavior you mentioned with respect to the population problem the difficulty of just supplying enough food to people and you talked about cultured meat now is that literally growing meat in petri dishes it is indeed it's uh, so the story in the summertime was about um it was a bit of a 
It's a lot of people would say it was a stunt, and it was a stunt in many ways. It was funded by uh, I think Eric Schmidt from Google and some scientists in the Netherlands had basically grown uh, out of some muscle tissue a burger made out of cells <laughs> in a petri dish, uh, and it took I think yeah. it took a very long time and several hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually uh, cultivate this small pate, uh, which they then fried live on camera. Um, they had a massive press conference here in the UK, and then um, yeah, somebody ate it. But the question is, was it horse meat? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, not. I believe it was it was cow cells, albeit as I say, not grown out of a cow, literally just grown cell by cell on a dish, which is quite remarkable. But yeah, I think it was uh, their, their point about it was that it was more of a it was a stunt, but a very well carried out stunt. I think because the idea was to promote debate around. Where are we going to get our food from? Could we eat cultured meat? Could this be a solution? And then thinking about how are we going to feed all these people? The New York Times just published Friday the 13th of September a highly controversial op-ed piece by Professor Ellis. He's a, an associate professor of geography and environmental systems at the University of Maryland. And he stated that overpopulation is not a problem. He claims that scientists misunderstand human ecology and the truth is that the only real challenge we have is developing our social and technological systems to continually improve productivity on the planet to support continuous growth. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, these are some of the things that um, Haley looks at in her chapter. Assuming that we cannot stop growing as a population, which in some ways we can't because you can't, as much as some governments may try, you can't really curtail people's free will to, to reproduce and people are just living longer, uh, which is what touches on the, one of our other questions, how do we live forever? Japan's facing this problem now. Um, they're getting to a state whereby most of their population now in very several close years are going to be in their kind of retirement ages. And who's going to look after them and how is their economy going to support them? That is a very key issue, Mankit. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you a question about that very thing. Right. Back in a sec. OK, we have a pause there. Interesting that a professor is arguing the opposite of most scientists by saying that population pressure isn't a problem. Mm, yeah, I was surprised by that too. He makes a great point that technology can increase efficiency of food production, so we're better able to supply more people. But infinite population growth, it's just impossible to sustain with finite resources, no matter how fantastic our technology is. And all this talk about culturing meat in Petri dishes has even made me hungry. <laughs> Well, grab a quick snack while we head back into the interview. We are back with Munkeet Louis. Hello. He's author of The Big Questions in Science, which is available now in bookstores. So, Munkeet, before the break, you were talking about population pressure issues in Japan and how they're going to cope with the aging population there. And one of your questions is actually, when can I have a robot butler? Yes, <laughs> and Japan apparently has a target to have elderly robotic aides by 2025. So how practical do you think this is? And also, would you like a robot butler? I think we'd all kind of like a robot butler. Uh, or we'd all like a butler full stop, really, isn't it? It kind of speaks to that middle class mentality whereby on the one hand, you'd really like people to be there or something there to kind of serve you. But on the other hand, you kind of you don't want to put anybody out <laughs> at the same time. It's quite an English thing. I think in some ways. Yeah, I think uh, it is and it isn't practical. What I go into in the chapter is that uh, on the one hand, a single robot who can do lots of things uh, well 
is quite challenging because uh, on the one hand, we haven't yet developed the artificial intelligence that would allow them to integrate so many different types of sensors and so many different types of um, attachments to allow it to do multiple things. We've got lots of robots that can do individual things really well. Um, so they can grip things or they can throw things or they can sort things. Or dance. Um, or dance. <laughs> but uh, to be able to do kind of adapt to like, all right, bring me a piece of toast, answer my phone, drive me to work kind of things, to do all those things at once, it's quite hard to integrate those together. And then the major problem you then have is actually the cost of integrating it all into one thing and then having an operating system like an artificial intelligence to try and make it all work as one. That's a, that's still a massive challenge. I, mean, I think Alan Winfield, the scientist that I speak to in a box in the chapter, he kind of makes the point that the public perception of robotics on the one hand is that we have made massive strides in robotics, but on the other hand, there's still quite a lot that we haven't done. And he, he feels that it's still lagging a little bit behind although we've made some strides in terms of different kind of attachments and hardware in terms of software particularly in artificial intelligence we've yet to get along um, but what we do have is we do have a suite of kind of robotic staff that if we designed our homes well enough I think we probably could have a kind of a, a staff of robot not butlers but kind of robot staff you could have your your automated car which is something they do have in California which Google makes to drive you Anywhere you want, um, you can have your uh, kind of robots that will bring you things. Like in a lot of the warehouses that online distribution companies like Amazon use, actually, they use robots like this one called the Kiva, which essentially they're tiny little robots that ferry the, the shells themselves to a single point at which the person who's packing your item up can take it off that shelf and put it ready to get going. Basically, the whole warehouse is rearranged on the fly bringing the most popular items to the front and the least popular items to the back. And these little robots ferry around this massive warehouse to bring everything that they need straight to the person to make that, that packing and delivery process more efficient. Um, so we have things like that. We obviously have robotic vacuum cleaners. A lot of your listeners probably have heard of the Roomba, which you can buy. You can have it as long as you've got a kind of fairly flat house, which I unfortunately don't because I've got a flat which has several stairs. But... If you've got a massive flat surface, your Roomba vacuum cleaner will clean your floor for you without you having to do much more than just change the dust bag every now and again. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends learned that the hard way. She got it, and it was Roomba carnage. It fell all the way down the stairs. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame. I know. I suppose there's the psychological issue, too. You mentioned that there's a self-driving car at Google in California now, and a mm. lot of people would just feel really uncomfortable not having their hands on the steering wheel. So learning how to interface with that technology seems to be a big challenge too. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's uh, it's interesting, the social aspects of how we integrate with technology. And you're seeing it a lot with how we use the internet is evolving, I think. And certainly how we've evolved to use smartphones. The fact that the simple fact of people not remembering phone numbers, you know, oh my God, I don't know my, my parents' home phone number. But a lot of people wouldn't remember their important phone numbers at all nowadays they just rely on their phone having it or the number of people that turn up to a place and not knowing where they're going and rely on google maps on their phone to uh, to guide them i think we're gradually ceding control more and more even if we don't realize that and it's just a matter of us getting used to it one point that i make at the beginning of the robots chapter is the fact that we do already have a lot of driverless things they're kind of the carriage systems that kind of ferry you from one terminal to another at an airport completely driverless and I don't think we actually realize that 
uh, until you actually look out and you go, oh, there's nobody driving this. <laughs> you kind of hope that there's somebody up there watching a camera driving it. But in actual fact, it is just uh, it's simply a, a computer ferrying you from one way to the other. I think if people realised that kind of thing, then probably they'd be a bit more comfortable with a driverless car. Yeah, but then there are movies like The Matrix that get people nervous again. <laughs> it does, certainly. Although the weird thing, that I, this wasn't in the chapter, but what I, one of the things I read in my research was that actually the Google driverless cars, the accident rate is far less than the human drivers are. So in actual fact, it's safer than driving with a, with a human driver. All right, we'll bring on the robots then. Yeah. There's a great quote in your book, in the introduction, learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. The important thing is to not stop questioning. Why do you think the practice of questioning is as important as the answers themselves? I do think that um, one reason why this is a, this was a great title for us and why it was a great kind of concept to get involved is, is that very reason. It's important not to stop questioning and it really harks back to the fundamental of what science is. Science is, is, is us trying to interrogate and make sense of our world. And I think it, it speaks to our curiosity, our want to develop, our want to, to learn more and use that knowledge to develop ourselves, both individually and as a species. And I think it's great because it, on the one hand, it, it gives you, as I say, knowledge and tools to allow you to do better things, to create better things, to live better in many ways. But it also, it puts you in touch with who you are and, and the world that you're in, the universe that you're in. And I think that's a nice thing about asking questions. You get to discover things that make you feel, on the one hand, humble, and on the other hand, in awe of everything that's around you, but also to feel like you're a part of it. So knowing, for example, that you know, you're made of the same stuff as the rest of the universe, knowing that you came from the same stuff as everything else around you, the other people around you, knowing that uh, what makes you human is similar to other people, maybe, and what's different between you and an orangutan or the kind of mouth that runs through your feet. I think it's nice. It makes you feel both connected and in awe of the universe around you. And for me, that's really what science is about, really. It's about learning more about ourselves, and it's satisfying that natural curiosity to both improve and also just feel more connected with uh, everything around you. Very nicely put, and I think anything that helps foster appreciation and tolerance of diversity is a fantastic thing too. So parents, when your kid asks you why for the 300th time that day, instead of getting mad, you can feel proud. That curiosity is really what seems to drive humanity forward, and that curiosity is something to be nurtured. And who knows, maybe your kid one day will be the one who answers a big question in science. Absolutely. Thanks very much for chatting with us here today, Monkey. Now, if people want to learn more about your professional nerdery and get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, you can find me on my website, uh, monkeatlouis.com, M-U-N-K-E-A-T-L-O-O-I.com. Excellent, and we'll post links to your book on our podcast page. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Many thanks to Monkeat Louis, one of the authors of The Big Questions in Science, which is available now in bookstores. You can find a link to the book and such on our podcast page. Great, and Munkeet also wanted us to give a nice little shout out to co-author Colin Stewart, who just married last weekend. Congrats, mate. Congrats from us. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm 
You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Kreese. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105.